Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Well, we're still with the uh, Isha Upanishad. It seems to me I'm taking a long time getting through this thing. As long as I keep it entertaining, it's all right. (laughs) It is he that has gone abroad. That which is bright, bodiless, without scar of imperfection, without sinews, pure, unpierced by evil, the seer, the thinker, the one who becomes everywhere. The self-existence has ordered objects perfectly according to their nature from years sempiternal. Into a blind darkness they enter who follow after the ignorance. They, as if into a greater darkness, who devote themselves to the knowledge alone. Other verily, it is said, is that which comes by the knowledge, other that which comes by the ignorance. And this is the lore we have received from the wise who revealed that to our understanding. He who knows that as both in one, the knowledge and the ignorance, by the ignorance crosses beyond death and by the knowledge enjoys immortality. This little saying that I read once upon a time and people quote all over the place, that life is a mystery. It is not a problem to be solved. Life is a mystery and it is to be experienced. So what then in your mind is the difference between a mystery and a problem? Hmm? A problem can be solved logically, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and so on. A mystery cannot be solved logically. A mystery is just to be accepted as it is, and then just to see into it. And I think maybe that one of the reasons that life appears, the life that we live, not life itself, the life that we live uh, is, seems to us to be so, such a mystery is because of there's, there's, there's so much contradiction. If we look around, there's thousands upon thousands of contradictions. There is all this variety that we see. Logic stands for an either-or attitude. It's either black or it's white, you know. Uh, It's logical. It fits together nicely. Like you find the right little jigs in a jigsaw puzzle and it fits together. And logically you make this very nice picture. But of course it is a picture that you create and not the picture as it, of what is. Life, we could say, you know, are the two ends of one stick, you know, the whole stick, the both ends. 
so that life is more than logic. Because what we sometimes call logic is merely our choice. Hmm? You choose out of what you hear and you choose out of what you see, of what you think is consistent with the ideas you already have. This makes you comfortable. But life is more than just having something fit in with your ideas. Mm-hmm. In fact, very often it doesn't fit with your ideas at all. Yeah. And we, we live in a kind of a split, in, in a dichotomy. And we talk this way. We speak as if this lifespan, these are the days of our lives. Hmm? These are the days of our lives. The number of days that I spend here on earth. And one looks forward to the days of your life. When you're young, you know, you look forward to being a teenager and then you look forward to being 21 as if this is going to change you somehow. And then you look forward to being 35 because this is the peak of all of your days. And then you try to forget the rest, <laughs> <laughs> except that you're having these days of your life. Yeah. And so in, in so talking and in so looking, you know, this is kind of, we forget the nights. We ignore the nights. And it may be we don't speak of the nights of our lives. No. <laughs> You're just as much alive then as you are in the day, you know. But sometimes, you know, in this nighttime, people have a tendency to face themselves. They may be trying to solve a problem, and all of a sudden they leave this process of logic and, and they begin to face themselves to see what is going on. Yeah. Then they go back to the logic because they don't want to face themselves. And in the night they suffer. In the nighttime they turn and they toss. There's nothing for their attention except themselves and their problems. They're all alone. Everybody else is asleep, you know. And here we're looking at the days of my life, what we've done with them. And also, <clears throat> we don't speak of the nights of our lives because during the nighttime, when we do fall asleep, we are not objectively self-conscious. It's confusing. It almost is as if we are not at all. And yet, every morning we wake up, <laughs> here I am again, same old me. Why am I not somebody else? Hmm? Same old me. <clears throat> it's, it's as if we try to accept life, that it's all flowers and no thorns. And we're always seeming, seemingly, we're trying to avoid the opposite. Forgetting that life does consist of polar opposites. The dualities hmm, of day and night. And when we look at it logically, or try to look at it logically, there seem to be so many inconsistencies, so many paradoxes, so many contradictions. But you know, life is very vast. And it can easily take in all of the contradictory. It takes it all and it holds it all. 
On the same bush in life, flowers and thorns and leaves all grow together. Hmm? That's logical? No. Logic will say you either grow leaves or you grow thorns or you grow flowers. But not all three together. And in this either or, this black or white, near or far, hot or cold, good or evil, whatever you're comparing, we have a tendency to forget that there is an excluded middle. There is something we have left out, an excluded middle. And that which is excluded is of the utmost importance. If a person had set their hearts on finding what Lao Tzu called the Tao, you're not going to find it by just looking at this end of the stick or at that end of the stick. You're going to look for it in the excluded middle. This was Nagarjuna's thing, too, you know, when he picked up this Buddha's middle way. Because seeming logically, you have got hot or cold, and we can say, yes, in the middle is lukewarm. But what actually is that excluded middle? Now in this, into a blind darkness, they enter who follow after the ignorance. It's not a question of should I choose to follow the knowledge or should I choose to follow the ignorance. We have not got that choice. Mm -mm. We will not knowingly if we can avoid it, follow ignorance. Hmm? No, 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 no. No, no, I'm not going to follow ignorance. No, 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 no. But watch yourself, because, oh boy, how we run after it, this ignorance. Mm -hmm. So then what is this ignorance, this ignorance and knowledge, vidya and avidya? And we, of course, are interested in this ignorance in a religious sense, rather than going through all the other rigmarole. In a religious sense, what is ignorance? In a religious sense, what is knowledge? What is this vidya and abhidya? What is this excluded middle? The excluded middle, of course, holds, it contains within itself both knowledge and ignorance. So what is that that holds both? So in thinking about it, wholeness, wholeness, is something we should be concerned with. This equilibrium of opposites. To find that that does not change in all the changing. The knowledge without the ignorance is not balanced. Hmm. You know, Buddha said something very interesting. He said that nirvana is samsara. Now, nirvana, we could say, is heaven, and uh, samsara is what is here on earth. See, nirvana is samsara. Samsara is nirvana. And we are admonished in the Christian 
Bible that we should seek the kingdom of heaven within to bring it to the earth. Heaven is the earth and earth is the heaven. And you see, a scientist at one time was writing about his findings and he interjected into the thing. What are you doing, O silent earth? What are you doing in heaven? Hmm? Yeah. Now, in India, uh, this Brahman hmm? and uh, the, the, uh, the gurus there, they spoke of a, uh, they still do, the self-absorbed states of Brahm, which they, uh, we call, you know, a state of serenity because it is a state of wholeness. It's self-absorbed. It is a state of freedom from confusion. It is, of course, a state free of suffering. Uh, it is a state that is free of the sorrows of this world. It is free from bondage. It is the supreme state of man. That's you and me. Hmm? the self-absorbed state of Brahm, the freed self, the free soul, the Shivatman it's called, huh? the free soul. It is a, a non-dualistic state. It's self-absorbed. And of itself, it does not, this state now, we're not talking about something that you all in your heads have placed up in the sky and said, oh, that's a self-absorbed state. This self-absorbed state, which you can find in yourself, this state of itself does not know this and that, high and low, hmm? day and night. Also, it does not know itself as itself. It is absorbed in itself. And it knows no subject, no object. How then can it know itself? Here we are subject and object, object and subject. Huh? Your world is full of objects. Huh? Now to realize in oneself this highest state of all, the supreme state of man, no subject, no object. And it's difficult. We have to contend with this ego in which we have invested so much of our time and our lives and our money and our thoughts and our feelings and you name it. Huh? This ego has come about by the ignorance. And it is a necessary function It does make us feel like a person. I feel like an individual. I've got an ego. What else makes me feel like I'm an individual? It is the ego function. I'm an individual in this world. It allows me to stand out hmm, from everybody else. It allows you to stand out from everybody else. You're an individual. You have an ego function. Hmm? So this is a necessary starting point. I am an individual because I, there is this ego function. Now, what am I really? Yeah. This, what I see here is, is like Shakespeare said, it is the stuff that dreams are made of. Hmm? This abidya, this ignorance, the stuff of ignorance. And this is where, if anybody is going to start on this pilgrimage to oneself. This is where we start. This is where everybody starts. Ignorance. Hmm? Now, 
you've been sitting, most of you, for quite some time. Do you know? Have you perceived? Have you seen the difference between the knowledge and the ignorance? Now, not what you think. Have nothing, nothing to do with what you think. Have you perceived the difference? Have you seen the difference between the knowledge and the ignorance? To be able to see this within oneself. That something here, oh yeah, that's the state of ignorance. And something, oh yeah, that's knowledge. Now, the way of knowledge perceives Brahman in his wholeness. This is the knowledgeable in this frame of these Upanishads. And this state does not follow after this, that, or the other. It doesn't say to itself, well, this is better than that. This state of consciousness is better than that state of consciousness. The way of knowledge does not do that. The way of ignorance perceives all of this multiplicity and says to itself, well, this is what I want because it's better than what I've got. And this I do not want because it's worse than what I've got. That which is true, the trueness, that which is true, is not attached to either the vidya or the abhidya. It is not concerned with either. And this state that is not concerned with either the ignorance or the knowledge is what these ancient sages and seers who were so steadfast in their holding their focus, you know, and they were not drawn away from this wholeness by this light or that sound or another thought. And so their comprehension, their, their perception remained in this totality, and the teachings that they gave were founded on that perception. And it is that teaching that has been handed down uh, in these Upanishads from that source. Now, vidya and avidya, ignorance and knowledge, two aspects of one whole. Both present and both necessary. Neither could exist without the other. For if one were to be abolished, they would both be erased. Or they would become something which would be neither the one nor the other. You know, if the, if all, if the evil, if what we call evil, is all of a sudden no more, if you reach a state of consciousness in which there is no evil, there is also no good. This is difficult hmm, for us to think about. I mean, there must the good must be left. Mm -mm. There is something else. In the deepest of ignorance, there is some point of knowledge. There is something of the opposite pole. You know, the light dwells in the darkness, and the darkness encompasses it not. The darkness does not understand it. No. Our minds are continually going somewhere else. We are sitting here in ignorance. We don't like that. We don't like to say, well, we're ignorant. It doesn't mean ignorant in that kind of a way. We're sitting here in ignorance, and we want the knowledge. And so we sit for meditation, because here now comes, this is the way, this is the method through which one attains this knowledge. And so we sit, and we sit, 
And finally, the knowledge becomes ours, yours. <laughs> what then becomes of the ignorance? All of a sudden, you found a little bit of knowledge, and what do you do with this ignorance? What are you going to do with it? Put it in a paper bag and throw it in the ocean? What are you going to do with it? <laughs> you, you, you know, there's the ignorance and the knowledge. You sit in ignorance, and, and all of a sudden, you get a glimpse. So now you've got knowledge. What happened to this ignorance? You can't dissolve ignorance out of existence by simply holding your mind very rigidly against it. You know, it doesn't dissolve in this way. All you're doing is dividing yourself. And you try to wipe out ignorance altogether and the knowledge goes also. What are you going to do with this ignorance? The ignorance gradually is absorbed by the knowledge and is transmuted. You don't do anything with it. And when it is, then this third aspect rises like a phoenix out of its ashes. Something comes out of it. Something is born out of these two coming together. Knowledge is not there to destroy the ignorance. You know, as if thinking as if, well, this is something that should never have come about. We should never have had ignorance. Should we? We should have never been ignorant? No, no. We should have been born with total knowledge. You were. What did you do with it? You brought ignorance in. You said, how do you do? Here's my door. Come in. Won't you step in, please? <laughs> With this knowledge, one draws the ignorance to oneself. It should support it. It should help the ignorance out of its oblivion. Ignorance then is fulfilled by turning to this unity, to a wholeness. So, here we are, you know, you and I, called the state of man, huh? There's plant, there's minerals, plant, animals, man, huh? man. And man represents the point at which the multiplicity of this universe becomes capable of turning around and fulfilling the whole of it. See, in consciousness, you know, this next step, Nature spreads herself out horizontally, in a line, as it were. She's linear. And then along has come man. I mean, everything else is, you know, you got four feet, and uh, plants are rooted in the dirt, and so on. But now comes man, and he stands upright. He's only got two feet, and he's standing, as it were, pointing to heaven and pointing down. The vertical has set in, and this is, of course, what makes the cross. And this is man. <clears throat> Our natural path of fulfillment comes by allowing, allowing our ignorance to surrender itself to the knowledge, allowing the multiplicity to go to the unity, the surrender of the many to the one, of knowledge accepting ignorance into itself. And then, you see, the one manifesting itself unveiled in the individual. And the individual becoming the universal one. The little thing that Henry did over there, 
the totality and man. The multiplicity becoming the one. The multiplicity becoming the wholeness. And the wholeness unveiled within a given one. Hmm? By ignorance fulfilled, the individual passes beyond death. And by knowledge, accepting ignorance into itself, he enjoys immortality. Now, in this Upanishad, death huh, has the meaning of a state of mortality this, which, in which we are subject to this process of life and death, this duality, this life and death. And this is the limited ego, you know, bound to its dualities of joy and sorrow, good and evil, truth and error, love and hate, your pleasure, pain, you name them. Hmm? They're all over the place, the, these polar opposites. And actually, the limited ego, this is all that it sees. And it's caught between. And it helps promote one against the other. And you wonder why you have conflict within? Hmm. This duality in which we labor comes about through our limitation. Uh, and we are mentally self-divided. We are divided mentally from this one Brahman, this God. Huh? And in the place of that, we have formed an attachment to what we call a self. We have this form in space and time, and we think of ourselves as I, and so there is this self. We are divided. You know, somewhere in that Old Testament it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's how we live. Yeah. You know, here we are in space, we're a body, we're a form in space and time in which limitation, you know, this true self is excluded from a view, from everything in the beginning, in our ignorance, except this mass of experience flowing in through the senses. This whole mass of experience that centers around the ego. And of course, this whole thing is limited by the capacities of that individual, the particular mental body state. The mind governs the body and the body governs the mind. And this, in turn, produces a limitation. And in that limitation, the ego says, but I know it all. When you use the word I, exactly what image do you have in mind? What image do you have about yourself? When you were a child, you had an image of yourself as a child, and you were very happy to play with toys. <laughs> that was your world. And then later, uh, as a young adult, developing the uh, strength, shall we say, of manhood, and developing the charms of womanhood, which I guess we're still trying to do, you know. And then later on comes middle age, and we're a little mellower, unless, of course, we're still trying to develop the strength of manhood and the charms of womanhood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But through it all, see, when we're enjoying the days of our life, 
and all of its pleasures, and there are times when we seem happy and successful and maybe blessed with a nice family and good friends. All through this, all through these stages, we have an image of ourselves, and it changes with the different stages. At this present time, you have an image about yourself, which is different than the images you had when you were a child. Hmm? Because you can still look at that child image. That's still there, too. Yeah. And so in our minds, we can also image ourselves 10, 20 years from now. And the image that we have projected will be different than the ones we have now. Now, out of all of these images, is there any particular image that you can call your own? Something that has remained with you throughout your whole lifetime. Do you have such an image? There is something that remains unchanged and has remained unchanged all the years that you've been around. And that is a constant sense that you are. That you exist. There is this constant sense. Uh, it's, it's a feeling, you know. I am. We have this. And that never changes. I am. It's a sense. This is a sense now. You're sitting in that chair now. And you're facing the window. And you're facing me. And you know this beyond any shadow of doubt, don't you? Sure, you don't need to be confirmed by me that you're sitting there. You don't need it to be confirmed by anybody. You know it. You know that you are. You know that you exist. You may not know what you are, but you do know that you are. See, this is man. Now tell me something. Um... In the absence of what would you be unable to sense your existence? Well, consciousness, of course, huh? I am conscious. Never mind what I'm conscious of. I am conscious. I exist. Now, tomorrow morning, the very first moment when you wake up, and I mean the very first moment when you wake up, and all of a sudden you're aware again, do you feel that constant presence that I exist. Do you feel existence or existing? Not, not, not as a person and not as an individual, just the existing. You wake up and existing is present. It is a kind of a presence of being here. This is so important. There's a presence of being here. And you have it every morning. And you go flipping right over it. Getting to that, I'm awake. I don't want to be awake. It's another day. I don't need this day. (laughs) When you say you see an object, And you look at objects all day long, every day. 
and you do it without acknowledging or realizing that you are looking at objects. Right now you're looking at objects. Hmm? You're looking at objects also in your mind, you know. What happens, of course, when you see an object is that your senses have reacted to a stimulus. There has been an impingement of energy on, on your sense gates, and so you and then see an object. <laughs> what your senses have reported and your mind interpreted, your mind has interpreted what has been reported, is an appearance in you, whether you call it in your psyche or in your consciousness or in your mind, it is an appearance of what is out there, how it appears to you as rendered by the senses, right? Now, this, that, this appearance that we are now aware of in ourselves and have in turn placed out there. We call it an event. Oh, look at what happened, an event. And this event for us is extended in time and space. The event, the manifestation of any object in some kind of motion. Hmm? Manifestation as such depends on this combination of space and time. With no space and no time, would there be any manifestation? Hmm? Well, how much manifestation is there when you're deep, 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 deep asleep? Consciousness is there, but time and space are not. So there's no object. There's no universe, as far as you're concerned. Existence, then, as we know it, in our ignorance, is a continuous process of objectifying. Hmm? We exist as each other's objects. You are my object, and I am your object. When this objectifying stops, as it does in deep sleep, the objective universe disappears, and so do time and space. Where, then, is existence? To know an object, there must be a subject. What is in here knows what's out there, so-called. Mm -hmm. What happens to the subject when all objects disappear? Well, it's something to think about. Huh? <laughs> as long as one imagines oneself to be a separate entity. In that state of being a separate entity, we cannot see the total picture of an impersonal reality. We don't even see the total picture of a personal reality. We have a notion of a separate personality not only because, but some of because, the illusion of time and space, which by themselves have no independent existence. We give them existence, time and space. Huh? They are simply a mode, it's a media, which makes manifestation cognizable. To us, you know, space, separate objects, space separates objects. Hmm? 
between you and me, there's a space, right? Sure, that separates us. That's because I'm a separate individual, right? Sure, and you too. Mm? Yeah, so we got the space. And time, of course, uh, or we could say duration, allows us to see the events or the objects in sequence. It's a sequential thing. Now, we are aware of one thought or one feeling, one perception at a time. And because of, we don't see the whole, we see them one, 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 one. See? This process of duration, and we call this time. See? It gives us an illusion of time. So we have an illusion of time, an illusion of space. Whenever there is any thought of me as a separate personality, which we have almost constantly because it's brought about by memory and by anticipation, that is the past and the future. Whenever we think of me as separate, immediately I'm in some kind of a bondage. I'm tied to past and future. Hmm? Now, to realize this subject-object thing, to realize uh, this bondage of an individual, once you actually realize it, that's the end of seeking. Now you know something. See? It's simple. It's, you know, the little koan of the monk that went to his teacher and, and pleaded with him, you know, please get me out of my bondage. And the teacher is just simply turning and saying, who put you into bondage? Now, the flux and the flow of this universe, this which impinges upon us, which is the mass of experience that is all organized, or mishmashes around is a better word, around this ego center, together with the time and memory, you know, and it says continually, I. This is I. Now, in this, this is I, we're not aware too much of the flow of this universe. We're too busy saying I. I am doing this, and I am doing that, and I am thinking this, and I am feeling that. So that only a portion, a small part of what is called this play of Pakrit, this flow of the universe, is acknowledged or known. Some of this impingement on the sense receptors is regarded by the ego as a rush-in of alien forces. It is not me that is doing this. It is not me. I see this. It is not me. It is other than me. I don't like this. It is other than me. It is something alien to me. Hmm? And so this ego defends its seeming separateness from dissolution into nature. And this has both a, a good and a bad point. Yeah. We spend a great deal of time within ourselves, much more than we realize. We spend a great deal of time asserting our individualness. Hmm? Because if it we're not individual, we got all these alien forces to deal with. My God, you know, the wind blows, it's an alien force. You know. And the ego, you know, is very, very limited. It can only, shall we say, master so much or so many of its experiences. It masters what it can assimilate. And the rest is subject to imperfect and subject to error. 
because that viewpoint is not the viewpoint of all. It is not a total viewpoint. So the viewpoint that we have in asserting our individualness is not a total one. And so our ego knowledge is partly error and all the rest is simply ignored. It is in ignorance. The ego accepts and harmonizes itself with a certain number of experiences within a given one, you know, the ego harmonizes itself with certain forces in here, precisely because these are the only ones it can understand sufficiently to assimilate. And this, when it harmonizes with these, it says, oh, I have joy. This is joy. And the rest is either sorrow or indifference, what is not assimilated. Hmm? The ego is capable of harmonizing within the individual a certain number of these alien forces. And when it does, in this it takes pleasure. This is our pleasure. We have harmonized with certain alien forces and the rest is received with either insensibility or pain. Hmm? Now man is in a place where he moves towards something which fulfills the universe by transcending it. Man must prepare himself for the transcendence and his own fulfillment. Preparation is necessary. You just don't jump into it. <clears throat> if ignorance is the cause of our mortality, that is life and death, it is also the path out. We are limited and we can use this limitation precisely. We can use it to affirm ourselves against the flux and the flow of Pakrit. Huh? That is to pull oneself out of it and then the Purusha transcends and transforms. Our senses through which, by which, we live in this world of appearance. It's your world, a world of appearance, huh? This by which we are objectively self-conscious seems to be our biggest stumbling block. God, if we could just get that out of the way, then I'd know it all. Huh? Yeah, these senses that giving me pictures with what's around here and it isn't telling me the truth at all. See, and you know, there was a teacher once that said that sense, the senses are the greatest sin. And this is not true. They are not. And here comes now a big contradiction. It is the tool that befools us. It is the tool that gives us this world of uh, dreams and illusions and deluded minds. So, but it is also the tool that saves us. Hmm. To hold uh, to a view this world, to view this world, the many objects, the many appearances, and to see it all without any identifications. And then, see, no longer identified, this non-identification, to turn around to whatever it is that is in us, whatever it is that views this world, you turn to that 
and we can do this. Because we know what the census report, and we can leave that there and turn around. And we should do this. In fact, we must do this. This is the effort of consciousness. This is consciousness evolving. Consciousness does not have to be lost in the appearances, nor does it have to be identified with the flux and flow of Pakrit. Parusha can come out. This evolving consciousness must awaken to a perception of something that is larger than this personal manifestation, this personal appearance. Because even to, you know, this is an appearance, this is an appearance, not only to you, but to me. What you look upon yourself as being is an appearance. It's not really you at all, it's an appearance. It is something appearing substantive. Yeah. Man has to transcend himself so that he can see the all in himself and himself in the all. You know, they say in India, the dewdrop slips into the shining sea and swallows it. Yeah. We have got to see that this I I which contains all. It's not ego I. And is contained in the all, is the one, universal one, and not just personal ego. We must reproduce within ourselves to assimilate that. Whatever name you want to call it, to reproduce it in yourself, to assimilate it, and to become that. We must see in actuality that this universal one is something transcendent that it is a soul being, it is a one being only, and that this world and all its forms and all the egos are only becomings of that one. This world is a becoming. It is a becoming which is always looking for a way to express itself in motion, in time, and in space. Avidya becomes the one with the vidya. Suffering, ignorance, and weakness. These are the terms that man has to deal with, and these are the assertions of this one. That one affirms itself in the midst of all of these limitations and divisions. Immortality does not mean, in this context, the survival of the ego after the dissolution of the body. The self survives. The self pre-existed. That self is unborn and undying. By immortality is meant the consciousness which is beyond birth and death, beyond the chain of cause and effect, beyond all bondage and limitation. It is free, it is blissful, it is self-existence. It is the parusha the Jivatman.
Now realizing this Purusha, having drawn him out from Pakrit and all that kind of identification, realizing Purusha, separate from Prakrit. No man, any given man, can work in a free activity. And then comes this question, having attained so far, what further utility have we for birth and works? None for ourselves, but everything for the Lord and the universe. Because all this is for the habitation by the Lord. Hmm? Yes. Okay. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.